0: Hey, Shift Shapers. Thank you for listening and sharing your support and your feedback with us. It's made all the difference in the world. I've got great news to share. Over the holidays, we're moving the Shift Shapers studios to a new, larger facility, and we're adding the ability to produce video content for you in the coming year. While we're unplugged for a few weeks during the move, we've rounded up a few of our most popular episodes for you to enjoy. All of us at Shift Shapers wish you and yours the best of holidays, And we look forward to helping you make 2016 your best year ever. Now, go out and shift that shape. What's behind the growth in the self-funded industry across all size employers? And what do you need to know to start that conversation? We'll find out on this episode of Shift Shapers. Change either paralyzes or energizes. The choice is yours. You're listening to the Shift Shapers podcast. You're about to learn firsthand from businesses and entrepreneurs who have successfully shaped the shifts in their industries. Get ready to become the change that you want to see. Here's your host and Chief Transformation Strategist, David Saltzman. This episode of Shift Shapers is sponsored by MyEdge, the premier provider of Form 5500 prospecting solutions for benefit advisors. Local, regional, and national advisors Rely on this affordable, easy-to-use, real-time search engine to find their target prospects. For more information, visit our website at www.shiftshapersonline.com. Our guest on this episode of Shift Shapers is Adam Russo Esquire. Adam is co-founder and CEO of the FIA Group, as well as founding and managing partner of Russo and Minchoff, a law firm. Now, the FIA Group does a lot of very interesting stuff. They provide plan documents and consulting. Today's conversation, I thought we might kind of start with a, another discipline that they deal in an awful lot, which is cost containments, claims recovery, plan design, etc. But with that, welcome, Adam. How are you today?
1: I'm great. How are you?
0: I'm fine. Thanks for sharing your expertise with our audience. We're always interested in our guest's journey. And you've got a law degree and you ended up working on the medical side um, as well. What was your journey like? How do you get to be doing what you're doing today?
1: That's a great question. I, I do get asked that a lot. People automatically assume that you know, it's a family business or you know, i took this over for my dad the truth is um i was 16 looking for a job and i knew i wanted to be an attorney and i happened to get a job working for an attorney who studied and handled segregation law erisa law um he had a small practice right da- right in downtown boston and i just started working for him for like six bucks an hour you know filing answering phone calls etc And I stayed there all through college, all through law school. I got my master's degree in finance. I stayed there the entire time. Literally, I went to school maybe five minutes away from my job. And I got to understand self-funding. I went to my first self-insurance conference at SIA. I think I was 18 (laughs) at my first ever conference. So what ended up happening was I became the director of sales for his organization, quite frankly, just because there was no sales guy. There was no salesperson. I was offered the job because there was no job, you know, we needed business. And I just started trying to sell. And the client I sold was a TPA in New York, a very large TPA. And I realized at that point in time that, uh, you know, maybe this is something I want to do for the rest of my life. And I realized that what's happening across the industry was at least when it came to cost containment and the type of recovery work that my company was doing at the time is that everything was off the shelf. There was no customization whatsoever. Even if I would go to people and they say, well, I want a special report. The answer always had to be no, we can't do that. Or there was a very stiff fee in order to do those things. And what I realized is the competition was the same way. So I basically took my experience that I got from my master's degree in finance. I took the experience I had from, from law school and all the experience I had there. And I called my best friend that I went to college with. His name is Mike Bronco. He's still my partner today. And I asked him, I go, hey, you want to do a really stupid thing and start a company? And he goes, what, what, what are we going to do? I go, we're going to do subrogation. And he said, several What? He had no idea what that even was. And I can tell you most people don't. So we uh, went camping up in New Hampshire for a weekend. I took a couple of yellow pads and we literally wrote out our business plan. I was 24 years old at the time. And we started the FIA group with $4,000 cash, $2,000 each. And uh, today we have 140 people.
0: Wow. It's rarely a straight line in, in these kinds of career paths and whatnot. It's always interesting. And that's that's why we ask the question. So you deal with a, a lot of advisors, benefit advisors. And as you know, and we discussed off-air, they're challenged to do more with less today. There are also a lot of them moving from more of a product play to a value play. How can they stay on task? And more importantly, how can they remain relevant to their clients and their prospects?
1: You know, great question. i it's so funny when healthcare reform first started coming up and you would hear, you know, people thought it was the end of the world, you know, the end of self-funding, the end of, you know, brokers and consultants. Mm-hmm. So, you know, what is this going to do for our industry? I took the exact opposite approach. I had the I had the belief system that this would only benefit our industry, It would give us even more business. There would be more opportunities. And I think I was right. I think I was proved right in that. And I can tell you. What you need to do now is for the first time, it seems to me, in a long time, people actually want skin in the game. If you look at healthcare 10 years ago, it was always viewed that the insurance companies were the bad element, you know, the big bad insurance company. Now, while there's still some of that today, I mean, you definitely don't hear it as much. You now look and people actually say, you know, why is that hospital charge so high? Why is that bill so big? Why do these costs just keep on continuing to rise year after year after year? It's no longer that whole – you know, just that Michael Moore movie, I think it was called Sicko, where everything was about a big, bad insurance company. And now people are realizing there's a lot more to it. So what companies, specifically employers, are starting to do is I think whereas maybe 10, 15 years ago, they made the assumption that, OK, my premiums will go up every year. My co-pays might go up. I might have to adjust the premium for my employees. People now realize there are real cost containment efforts, things that you can do within your plan to help drive down those costs. People feel much more empowered to do that. So I think when people are seeking, are empowered, they're looking for opportunities. Having true experts out there in the industry, and these are brokers, consultants, advisors, there's much more opportunity to bring you a value-based answer, a value-based approach where you tell people, okay, you're trying to get to X, Y, and Z. Here's how we can take you there. And the great thing about the environment that we're in with healthcare reform is that because it's all so new, There are so many different things that we can do as an industry to get people to become success stories. There's no lawyer in the country that could ever actually tell you that they have a dozen years or 10 years experience in healthcare reform. It's only been around for such a short period of time. Everyone's new at this. This is all brand new. So it's very different from a legal standpoint. It's a very different industry than, you know, for example, my law firm, you know, my partner, she does estate litigation, okay? That law has been settled for years. <laughs> There's not a lot of new stuff that's happening in estate planning, okay? But when you look at healthcare and you look at how plans are drafted and how people how our employers are consulted, you take an employer and what their issues are from a healthcare standpoint three years ago and take that same plan today, it's two completely different conversations. And that's what's beautiful about our industry, and that's what's great about I think the opportunity for consultants, brokers, and advisors to really, really do good by their client, and really have a potential for a lot of success.
0: Well, and our audience is kind of mixed in terms of where they market. And there's a good chunk of the audience that markets in the small and mid-market space. There's always been a lot of talk about what the largest or the smallest, rather, size group is that would be appropriate for self-funding. I know you've got a real strong opinion on that. What What are your thoughts?
1: You know, I love that question. I right? and I, I ask this question when I speak all the time. I'll actually ask people to raise their hand and tell me what do they think the perfect self-funded plan size is. Okay? I never forget. I had a guy one time tell me, one million lives. I said, what? He said, one million lives. I'm like, so you realize, sir, that they'd ha- there'd be like three clients in the entire country <laughs> that could actually be your client. But that, you know, and I hear 500, you know, 2,000, 5,000, 10,000. And I sit there and I say, take him. A- Different approach at this. Look at this in a different way. Let me give you an example. Okay, if I had, and again, I'm not, I'm not, I'm just using an example. Not stereotyping any particular type of individuals. But let's just say you have a truckers' plan. Okay, you have a bunch of truckers. Now, I can bring this up because a couple of my best friends actually drive for a living. So I know that you know you tend to get a little bit of a pot belly when you when you're driving around a lot in, in those cars. If you had a plan of five thousand truckers that they all smoke, let's say. They all drink a lot. They drink to the excess. They don't exercise. So they all have diabetes. They all have high blood pressure. They're all about 50, 60 pounds overweight. So let's say they're morbidly obese. But there's 5,000 of them. Is that a good candidate for self-funding? I don't think so. There's 5,000 lives. But I probably not want to take on too much risk there. Now, you take 200 yoga instructors. They don't eat meat. They hike every day. They drink only water. They don't even know what alcohol looks like. But There's only 200 of them. Which of those two is a better candidate to be a self-funded plan? I would take the yoga instructors. The best self-funded plan, what if you have a self-made millionaire, a single guy or a woman, and they're just filthy rich? They have a lot of cash. Why do they need to buy health insurance? Why can't they just walk into a facility and just start pulling $100 bills out of their pockets and pay for health care? So I really don't think it, the size of the employer is what matters. I think it's the demographics of that employer, the demographics of that, those particular individuals. And the way you figure out if someone's a good candidate for self-funding is by looking at their claims data. History repeats itself. What you look at in the past when you look at the claims, where are the risks? And then you can say, okay, I now have, I now know what the risks are with my employees' data, with my employees' claims. And then you build a plan design around that particular risk. So you can look at the advantages of your plan and disadvantages and customize the right approach for you. That's what we do for our self-funded plan. That's how we take it, look at it going forward. And I, so when you answer that question, the answer is not really the size of the plan, but the type of individuals and the demographics and claims within that plan.
0: Now a word from our sponsor, MyEdge, the premier provider of Form 5500 prospecting solutions. Are you wasting valuable time searching for qualified leads? The MyEdge prospecting solution makes it easy to research, find commissions, premiums, fees and see all the current lines of coverage an employer is reporting. Why not use a targeted 5500 prospecting solution that was designed specifically for benefit advisors? MyEdge supplies the data that counts when you need to research prospects or learn what competitors are selling in your market. And learning to use MyEdge is fast and easy When your prospecting data is accurate and with real-time updates, you'll spend less time researching and more time selling. To learn more about this innovative prospecting solution, visit our website at www.shiftshapersonline.com. So if a benefit advisor who's never really been in this marketplace before wants to start talking with prospects and talking with clients about self-funding, I'm sure you spend an awful lot of time advising those folks. What is that conversation like? How do you explain to the benefit advisor how to broach this subject and how to have an initial conversation with a prospect or with a client?
1: I guess the first thing I would bring up is you're always trying to find out what people's pain points are. You know, that's the one of the things that I learned early on in this business is people, especially in healthcare, it's almost like they need to be told what areas they need assistance in because it's just, there are so many complexities and so much going on. So what I would advise you to do is the first thing is, Ask them what they like or don't like about their health care plan that they currently have. What, the, what don't they like about their insurance experience? They might tell you that every year their premiums go up. They might say they have a narrow network. They don't have enough facilities or enough doctors that they can visit. I mean, there's a bunch of different things that you could ask them to get a feel whether they're a candidate for, let's say, self-funding. So if I go to an employer, and let's just say, for hypothetically, you have 1,000 employees in a specific city or town. And nearby, there are three local hospitals that most of those 100 or 1,000 employees and their families go to those particular facilities for services. That's a beautiful candidate for self-funding. So one of the things – and the reason is because you can actually have a direct contract with one of those hospitals or one of those facilities for that employer to do a direct contract with them and come up with an agreed-upon price. So now you have a direct contract with a facility that's going to save you millions of dollars, tens of hundreds of thousands of dollars at least in – Hospital claims, hospital costs. So the way to approach it is to look at what is their current environment, what are their pain points that they have, and then you have to figure out, and this is the hard part, you have to figure out what that claims experience is. The problem with the fully insured world is they don't like to share that data. So it's not that easy to walk into a, um, an employer who's been fully insured for 10 years and go, okay, send me all of your claims history. So we can take a look and see where, you know, what the claims information is going to tell us. It's very hard to get that information because the fully insured carriers feel that's theirs. They own that. That's proprietary to them. And there's been many case laws around the subject. It's something that it's just held very tightly by the large carriers. So if you can't get access to that claims data, what can you do? Well, that's what you find out just by talking, finding out questionnaires, getting health information in regards to the employees to figure out. Is this particular plan, is this employer a good candidate to self-fund first? And if you think they are a good candidate to self-fund, then there's a whole new slew of questions that obviously you have to look at by choosing the right administrator, whether or not you're going to work with a network, so on and so forth. But in today's environment, we're noticing now that it's almost approaching 63% of all employers are self-funded. You're noticing that smaller and smaller groups are self-funded. You know, it's getting close to you know, 15 to 20 percent of small employers, 50 lives or under, are now self-funded, where in the past it was like 10, 12 percent. So you're seeing an increase there. Because when you have an employer with 50, 60, 70 lives, employees, and they're looking at their options and they say, Oh, you know what? I can stay fully insured, I have no control over my costs, or I can go self-funded or join the exchanges. And I can build a nice wellness program. We have a young, healthy population. People work out, people go to the gym. We offer free fruit in our kitchen area. There are so many things now because of healthcare reform tied into wellness that many employers are taking advantage of those incentives and realizing if I can keep my people healthy in the first place, there are no claims. Less claims is less spend. Less spend is lower healthcare costs. So I think the number one focus, especially these smaller and smaller plans, is can we have a healthy workplace? Can we have a healthy wellness-type environment for our employees? And if you're a broker out there or a consultant who doesn't have a strong wellness program behind you, you need to or partner someone that does because that's a big, big piece of the strong brokerages out there. The ones that have strong or good ties in with wellness plans or wellness design, those are the ones that are succeeding right now. Go forward.
0: So we, we have a market that's growing. It's growing in a variety of different segments. We have benefit advisors who have never talked about this before, who are starting to learn about it and have conversations. And it will come as no surprise to any of our listeners that the government wants to try to stop this or at least put a wrench in it. Why is that, Adam, and how are they doing it?
1: This one is something I've been discussing for years. And I think at first, Many people thought that I was crazy to even bring it up. But to me, I always took the sense that the biggest threat to our industry, to self-funding, for example, and the fact that it's growing, is its own success. The success of self-funding is its biggest threat. Now, let me give you an example. Exchanges. If every employer, you have a healthy employer, they have choices. What does that state or federal government exchange program want? They need healthy lives in the exchanges. They need them. That's the bottom line fact. If the exchanges are just full of sick people, they will blow up. The costs are just going to be too high. You need healthy money coming in on healthy lives that is going to offset the sick lives. That's just the reality. Everyone coming in can't be sick. So what can you do? Well, if you notice that self-funding is growing, that more and more employers who are having who have a healthy population are choosing to self-fund. How do you stop that? Well, people say, well, we're ERISA plans. You know, We're protected by federal law. The states can't touch us. You're right. If you never plan on purchasing stop-loss insurance, if you're self-funded, if you have so much money in the bank that you never need any type of stop-loss protection, okay, you're fine. But the reality is, just like my company, we have a stop-loss deductible of $50,000. We're here in Massachusetts. If the law in Massachusetts said, that you could not purchase stop-loss unless the specific deductible was 200000 I would no longer be self-funded. I cannot afford the risk that any one of my employees may have up to $200,000 in claims per year. It would put me out of business. I would therefore immediately stop being self-funded. I would either be fully insured under subject to the control of the state, or i join the exchange. So the easiest way to curb the growth of self-funding, the simplest way, is for a state agency, a state insurance commissioner, to find ways to limit the availability of stop loss within that particular state. And that's how they're doing it. We saw it recently in New Mexico. We saw it in California. You're seeing it in North Carolina. All We saw it, we saw it in Connecticut. But luckily, what's happened, and here's the scary part. In New Mexico, for example, a few weeks back, the insurance commissioner issued a bulletin basically stating that stop loss is now going to be treated no different than health insurance. A bulletin. It wasn't a bill. There wasn't a law passed. There wasn't a public hearing. Literally, a bulletin. Stop loss in New Mexico died that day because no stop loss carrier is going to be subject to being viewed upon as a health insurance plan. You could not purchase stop loss in New Mexico. So, what happens to every employer potentially in New Mexico? Well, now they have to look at the exchange as an option or becoming fully insured. Luckily, with the help of the self-insured insurance um, associations, the large employers, there was a pushback. And within one week of the bulletin being filed, it was rescinded by the same agency. So now everything's back to normal. But there's no question. I feel that we need the exchanges to work a little bit because the worse and worse the exchanges do, the more of a threat it is going to be on self-funding to pull some of those lives away. Because remember, every broker or every consultant on this call – if you have an employer that has 75 lives and they're a pretty healthy group, you want them potentially to be self-funded or privately insured. The last thing you want is for them to join the, that exchange because if they do, that's also a client you might lose.
0: Adam, in the, in the minute or two that we've got left, I, we always try to wrap up by asking all of our guests where they see the future. And, and you can define that however you want, near-term, long-term. But in a minute or two, where do you see the future of self-funding? Where do you see benefit advisors going? How do you envision all of that looking a couple of years down the road?
1: You know, luckily for me, I plan on being in this industry for a long time. So I've had a lot of time to think about this from a long-term strategy point of view. And I think the future is bright. I think the opportunities right now are endless, specifically when you're looking at this from a service-oriented business, a boutique-type shop, less of like a Walmart or a superstore approach and more of that hand-holding approach, the customized approach. We design a lot of plans, and what I'm seeing less and less of are the cookie-cutter plan designs, where every single employer is treated the same in the plan design. Think about it. Why would you treat that 5,000 life truckers' union or truckers' plan? They have different needs than the 100 yoga instructors. Their plan should be written in different ways. All these plans are all over the country, and there are different areas of the country They have different specific needs and wants and desires specific plan design, customization is the future in my opinion. And you can even look at that from a standpoint of, you know, I talked about one of the things I like to talk about is like, for example, um, MD VIP or like, you know, there are VIP services for doctors and physicians, et cetera. That is the future more and more ability to customize or cater to a specific type of clientele. Because if you look all over the world, especially in places where there is a single payer system, they have concierge services for healthcare. If you look at countries like Spain, for example, they have concierge services for in the private sector that is competing against the government plan that are just unbelievable type of services and, and platforms. I see the future being more of a boutique style process where the opportunities for brokers and advisors are endless. That's what I see.
0: Adam Russo, co-founder and CEO of the FIA Group. Adam, thank you once again for sharing your expertise with the Shift Shapers audience.
1: I appreciate the time. Thank you so much.
0: The Shift Shapers podcast is a production of the Saltzman Group. We work with entrepreneurs, executives, and companies just like you to help shape the shifts in your business. To schedule a 20-minute call to learn more, visit our website at thesaltzmangroup.com or call me directly at 803-386-8005. I'd love to hear from you. And while you're on our site... You can also click the podcast tab for the entire catalog of Shift Shapers episodes and to access some really great special offers. Give me a call at 803-386-8005 and learn how to put the secrets of the Shift Shapers to work in your business.